Hello and welcome to Time Lock, in which guests choose the records they would place in a time capsule to represent their lives. On this, the second episode, we're delighted to talk with Bill Brewster. Writer, journalist, DJ, producer and massive Grimsby Town FC fan, Bill Brewster has seen and done pretty much everything there is to do in the music industry. With Frank Broughton, he's written a series of seminal books including the essential How to DJ Properly, the art and science of playing records. He ran Mixmag and DMC in the US and the amazing DJHistory.com site. More recently, he created the superb After Dark series on Late Night Tales, and I know him best through his sleeve notes. Go and check your collection because I'm pretty sure you'll find an artist in LP he's written about. I'm AMC and I'm your host for the next hour. This version contains the music Bill chose. There is an alternative version out there with no music and a longer interview if you want to seek it out. Recorded during full lockdown in the UK, you'll hear Bill talk about the importance of magazine compilation tapes, what goes on at a DJ music industry party, and which famous frontman acted up at a Gil Scott Heron gig. So yeah, I, I, I'm. I suppose the good thing about what's happened with the lockdown is that it's forced me to kind of think more about the kind of writing jobs that I do and how I can monetize that a bit more. I'd sort of become more and more reliant on DJ income because it's just so much more lucrative than than writing. You know, to I don't know, write a sleeve note for someone can take a day, a day and a half, and but you earn maybe. 20% of the money I'd earn for DJing for two hours. So, mm. you know, there's, there's a big uh, there's a big discrepancy between what I can earn for, from playing and what I can earn from writing. But, mm. I, do, but I do really like writing. And, uh, but I, I, I want to write about the things I want to write about. And, and so that limits my horizons slightly. So it means the only way I can achieve the things that I can do is either to do them in book form or or some other kind of you know non-magazine form because most magazines are not interested in printing the kind of thing the stories that I'm interested in writing um so um Frank and myself have just put a um a proposal together for another book uh, so we're working on that as a as a proposal at the moment and then if that if we get as a buyer for it, which we've got a publisher interested, uh, we would deliver that around Christmas time this year, and it would come out kind um, this time next next year, I guess. So, so I've got you know I've got things happening, irons in the fire, as it were, but it's all a bit in flux at the moment, just because mm. of the situation that we're in. You know, mm. I'm spending as much time baking bread as I am kind of 
think, think about you know what I'm going to do to earn money. So feeds the stomach, not the pockets. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a strange time, and I and I have children, so I spend time with them, and you know, um, uh, yeah, and they're kind of at a bit of a loose end as well, really, because technically this is their Easter holiday. Mm. Um, you know, the first week of the lockdown, they were getting set quite a lot of work from school. So they were kind of being occupied during the day. Um, but now they're just, you know, my daughter's obsessed with this thing called Animal Crossing. So oh, right. Yeah. Basically in their bedroom, 18 hours a day, with Animal Crossing. So. <laughs> Starting off with David Essex and Rock On. Talk a bit more about this one, what it it means to you. Okay, so I I chose them in chronological order because it kind of made sense to me to do it that way. And and David Essex was my first pop hero, first of all. Uh, The first person whose posters I put up on my wall when I was 13. And... You know, I liked a lot of different records when I was 13. And, and I think as a young teenager, you're a bit indiscriminate in the kind of music that you like a little bit. So you look back at some of the records that you like and you think, well, that was actually terrible. Uh, but Rock On is one of those records that is genuinely fantastic. It still sounds amazing now. The production is incredible. It's just a really, really great record. But on the other hand, I remember liking Chirpy Chirpy Cheep Cheep by Middle of the Road as well. So clearly I wasn't some kind of discerning teenager. I like lots of shit records and I like some good ones as well. And I don't really know why I, why I was attracted to both of them. But I think that David Essex record is important because it made me really fall in love with pop music. And... Um, and I think most of us grow up, even if you end up listening to Underground Resistance when you're 25, most of us grow up listening to pop records. Yeah. You know, that's your first encounter with music is Radio 1, pop music. And, and David Essex was that for me. And 
at the time there was a big rock and roll revival going on in the UK, of which this was part. Shawaddy Waddy, Shaking Stevens, um, Malcolm McLaren had a store called Let It Rock. Um, so there was a there was a big kind of Teddy Boy revival going on around that period, and um, also the movie That Will Be the Day, which was a for me a seminal a seminal British film from that period. I was absolutely crazy about that film, and also Stardust as well, which was the kind of follow up film to it. But that'll be the day. was It was a fantastic film, and I remember when I first got to know uh, Andrew Weatherall, uh, the first thing that we really bonded over was um, was David Essex and that'll be the day. That was his kind of introduction to rock and roll, mm. and I and I still love that movie. I think there's something quite um, sad and dark about it actually when you watch it again as an adult, which I didn't notice as a kid. But yeah, I, I kind of loved that period, and th- and there were a lot of uh, rock and roll albums being reissued at that time, like Eddie Cochran's Greatest Hits and Chuck Berry's Motivating was another album that I bought around that period. So it was a kind of gateway into a lot of um, a lot of original rock and roll records that I discovered from from that one record. So yeah, it was an important record for me, I think. I like the fact you said it was in chronological order because I was going through it like thinking, yeah, should I play around with this order? And then I was like, no, hang on a minute. This absolutely makes sense in how you've done it. So I'm glad you said it because then you get into, I mean, is it prog rock? Is it glam? Is it just, I'm not quite sure what it is, but the sensational Alex Harvey band and Faith Healer, that, I mean, that there's a lot going on in that record. Okay, so my introduction and a lot of people's introduction to Alex Harvey of uh, the Sensational Alex Harvey Band was was a, a, an old grey whistle test performance that they did uh, when their album Next was about to come out, which I think was 1974. And um, they did a... Next is actually a song by Jacques Brel and they did a cover version of it. At the time, I'd never heard of Jacques Brel. But I was astounded by them. They looked incredible on this show. And I was like, wow, they are amazing. I, I love the theatricality of them. And they just look really, really out there. And so I thought that was the first kind of, I suppose, adult record purchase for me in terms of a band that weren't necessarily in the pop charts. They were more of an album band. They were more of a live band. Um, unfortunately, I never got to see them live, but um, because he died uh, quite young-ish, I think he was like 51 or something like that. 
Um, but I did once see him walking down Charing Cross Road not long after I moved to London in 1977. But I, there's something, I love the electronic pulse of that record. Um, and it's been sampled on quite a lot of records as well. If you look in, I, I've not looked in who sampled actually, but certainly there are there are several kind of early British house records that sample it. And um, there's just something epic about it, but not in a prog rock way. It, it, it's just, I don't know. Mm. I just loved Alex Harvey. I thought they were an incredible band. And then the more I got to know about him, the more I became fascinated with him because he also had a, I think called the Alex Harvey Big Soul Band in the 60s and that did like kind of R&B and soul covers in Glasgow and was really, really a well-known musician in Scotland. Um, but yeah, that, that era of that music, for me, they were, they were the band that kind of bridged um, glam rock to punk rock. They were kind of my, my gateway into going towards punk rock. Um, so... I think music got a bit boring in that period from a, a white rock perspective and I hadn't yet really discovered soul music in a big way and I hadn't really discovered funk and all of those kind of... So obviously it was a, a golden era for black music but a, a lot of that I discovered retrospectively but from a white rock perspective I thought they were the kind of the saviors of rock at the time. So you said the electrical pulse of this one is the one that attracts you to it was this also something you saw on the TV, this particular track, or was it just something you picked up when you, I know, got into the album? It was it was on the album, um, and, and I'd been interested in electronic music already. There were a few other records that came out uh, from a similar era, like Babbar O'Reilly by The Who. Um, obviously, the, the first Kraftwerk record that was a hit, which was Autobahn, or it was the first record that was a hit in the UK. Um, so there were electronic things that I'd been interested in. I, I was interested in electronic sounds without really knowing what it was, to be quite honest. I didn't really understand the difference between a keyboard and a synth, you know, a piano and a synthesizer, but I just liked the sound of it. Um, and it was only really when I think the, the first band that made me really notice electronic music as a thing was Human League's first single, Being Boiled, which came out in 79, I think. Um, and then suddenly, and they and they were talking about not using any acoustic instruments at all, and I was like, wow, that sounds interesting. So that that kind of really got my attention, but there were precursors to that, and this was one of them. What do you think about the rest of the kind of repertoire? I mean, you mentioned obviously one of the other aliases, the kind of big soul band, but when you think of the at this kind of guise of Alex Harvey band, was there anything else that kind of, any other seminal tracks from that you'd kind of pick out, or is it just basically the whole LP is just worth it? Well, there were about three LPs on the on the trot that were really good. Um, there was, God, I can't remember the name. Well, one's called Tomorrow Belongs to Me. And I think that was the follow-up for, I think Next came out in 74, Tomorrow Belongs to Me came out in 75. And then I think there was another one after that. And then they kind of had a, a hit with a cover version of Delilah. Delilah. That about 76, maybe. And, and then a minor hit with a track called Boston Tea Party. But I just, to me, they were always much more of an al an album band because their albums were incredibly varied. They'd have like almost vaudeville jazz tracks on there, and then they have like hard rock tracks, and then kind of really funky things on there, and 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 just lyrics that made no sense but were intriguing. I mean, who who was Vambo? 
they, they had all of these mentions of Vambo, and I never really found out what the hell Vambo was. But so they, they were they were a fascinating group for me. Well, there we go. There's a plea out to anyone listening to this podcast. We know the answer to who Vambo is. Get in contact with Bill. Be well pleased. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Switching up completely then, because obviously you mentioned kind of the transition into sort of punk rock. We're not there yet because we're turning to Jackie Wilson and Nothing But Blue Skies, B-side to Sweetest Thing, I think, originally on the original release. So what's this doing here? Northern Soul record and, yeah. and um, it was a big Northern Soul record in Cleethorpes um, so a lot of the records I'd started getting interested in Northern Northern Soul was really big in the town that I grew up in um, and there was this guy Roger Banks who was in my class at school who was organising uh, coaches to Wigan Casino when he was 14 I had no idea that any of this was going on at the time and I didn't really become aware of Northern Soul until I left school at 15 and started going to a local FE college to train as a chef. And two of the guys that I was training with were both subsequently turned out to be gay, but at the time I I didn't, I wouldn't have even understood what gay was really. But anyway, they were really into Northern Soul and they were going to the all-nighters and they... um, I remember going down to London with one of them one time to buy a pair of leather-soled Ravel shoes because they worked better on the dance floor with talcum powder. Um, So I was fascinated by this subculture that had been happening under my nose, like a couple of miles away from where I grew up, that I had absolutely no idea was even... It was just not on my radar at all. So they started introducing me to records like... um, uh, there was a Spring Rain by Silvetti, which actually was a disco record, but it was a big record at Cleethorpes. Um, Sexy Sugar Plum by Roger Collins, which was an, a, another, a new release rather than a, a rediscovery. Um, and Blue Skies by um, Jackie Wilson is one that stands out from that period of just being a really, really amazing record. And, and it's not even that particularly well known now, I don't think. I mean, you know, because it's the B-side. Um, but it's an incredible record and it reminds me of that period of, of starting to understand um, how deep music culture went and how listening to Radio 1 is not going to tell you everything about music and, and that was my first inkling that there was, there was so much more on, you know, music's like an iceberg and you know, the, the top of it is Radio 1 and then underneath it is this vast world of music that you have no idea exists and then you gradually 
peel back these layers and discover all of these different things that you know nothing about. And yeah, so discovering Northern Soul was kind of a, a small introduction into a, a different world of music. <laughs> When we skip forward to, not show my age, but in the year and the month of my birth, Jan 77, Buzzcocks, Boredom. I think there's a nice quote I found that said about this song, three chords is overkill, all you need is two notes and, and an idea. Yeah, I, I mean, when I listen back to all of the records I bought at the time, I mean, I've sold my record collection now, but when, when I had all of these, there were very few that I... I could listen back to and kind of enjoy. I mean, you know, I could listen to the early Fall records and enjoy them, I think, and, and maybe a few others, but the Buzzcock for them is still one that's, that's, that's so to the point and economical that I, I, I loved it. And it was at a time when you were hearing a lot of rumours about bands and stuff like that, but there, w there wasn't actually very much in the way of music you could buy. This was one of one of the, it wasn't the first. New Rose by the Damned was one of the first. Then again, an another record that I can still listen to now. Um, but I think Boredom just encapsulates that whole period for me uh, in in a more direct way, even than the Sex Pistols. Even though the Sex Pistols were probably more pivotal. Um, and yeah, it's an amazing record. I, I absolutely love it. And did you keep this one? I didn't. Uh, you didn't. I, I, no, I got rid of everything. Yeah, see, I was going to ask you about that because as someone who has a much smaller collection, I'm, I'm finding it difficult to part. But I mean, you just you went through the whole lot, right? And that's what over ten thousand. Is that right? It's between thirteen and fifteen thousand. Jeez, yeah. so, so how long did that take to shift all of that? Uh, I sold it to Nick the Record, who runs DJ Family okay. Records in Brighton. Um, <clears throat> two trips. He, came, he had like a big van thing, and he came one time and took half of it, and then about two months later, he came back and took the rest. <laughs> so I, I kept everything that I made myself like produced or written or remixed or whatever uh, anything that i'd had of direct involvement i kept one copy of uh, right, and, right. and then the rest um i thought that's the easiest way to dispense with it otherwise it's going to take me years to decide what to keep and what to get rid of um things like things like that though i've got like i've got like a punk rock box set of cds so i've got all of that kind of stuff still I've still got a big CD collection, um, so I haven't got rid of music. I just got rid of vinyl. CDs are so much more easy to store. I mean, they're nowhere near as bulky as, as albums and 12 inches. See, I, I've got it the other way around. I've got all the records out and all the CDs packed away. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's personal taste, isn't it? I mean, the thing is, I DJ uh, digitally now, so it doesn't make any sense. That, you know, so if I tr if I buy something. I try and buy it as a CD or as a as a download first and foremost because you know a lot of the music I buy I use for playing 
uh, as a DJ. Not necessarily dance records, but, you know, I do a lot of different gigs where, you know, you kind of play different styles of music. So I, I like to have a, a good digital copy of everything that I buy, if I can. I was a huge fan of the Buzzcocks until, until about 79 when I was really getting into much more sort of post-punk things. Um, but I saw them play about eight times. Um, I saw them play with Joy Division supporting them. Um, I bought the first three or four albums. Uh, Another Music in a Different Kitchen, which is the first album. There's a track on that called Moving Away from the Pulse Beat, which is amazing, like really long, kind of quite almost quite proggy track, actually. Mm. Uh, one of my friends actually sampled the drum break in it on a house record in the early 90s. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I loved them and I went to see them often and I loved all of the pop records that were crossing over into the charts. You know, what do I get is an absolute triumph, I think. That's kind of probably in a lot of ways better than boredom but i just think boredom encapsulates the era so much more succinctly than anything else well the first thing i want to say is mandate my ass because it seems as though we've been convinced that 26 percent of the registered voters not even 26 percent of the american people but 26 percent of the registered voters form a mandate or a landslide 21 percent voted for skippy and Three, four percent voted for somebody else who might have been running. But oh yeah, I remember. In this year that we have now declared the year from Shogun to Reagan, I remember what I said about Reagan. Minute. Acted like an actor. Hollywood. Acted like a liberal. Acted like General Franco when he acted like governor of California. Then he acted like a Republican. Then he acted like somebody was going to vote for him for president. And now we act like 26% of the registered voters is actually a mandate. We're all actors in this, I suppose. So now moving into real whopping great big funk with Gil Scott Heron and B-Movie. I'm not sure what to say about this other than it sounds as relevant now as it did then. It's just the kick on that downbeat is just... There's some reverb on it, and it just gets you going. I absolutely love it. So, again, you mentioned earlier about you, know, you were kind of getting into your, all the, these other, you know, the iceberg and getting into layers and the other pieces of music. So when did this sort of and funk in particular start to kind of get into your life? Well, I got interested in funk through a, a certain ratio, really. That they, they, I mean, I re- was really a big fan of a certain ratio, and they started mentioning bands like Cameo and Spunk, and these kind of heavy funk, American funk bands. So I started looking for records. This was before uh, Word Up came out. This was like uh, 79, so I think Nights of the Sound Table might have been the Cameo album that was around in that period. But anyway, I started buying Cameo singles and albums. I bought um, I bought a, a Spunk single on Gold... Is it Gold Star, that label? I can't remember the name of the label now. Um, Tighten It Up, I think, is the track that I bought. It also came out on a 12 as well. So I'd sort of been exploring that a little bit without really knowing where else to go with it. And then the enemy started doing a series of tapes, uh, starting with the very first one, which I think was C81. And um, 
they were compiled by a guy called Roy Carr, and and I learnt so much about music from these these cassette tapes. Uh, for the first one, I think you had to save up vouchers in the enemy and then send away for a copy, and you and it was like a pound or something. But then they stopped doing that, and you could just buy them. But I bought every one, and they were, you know, they were jazz and blues and jump and swing and just bebop and all kinds of different styles of music. But the first few were like really quite balearic in a lot of ways because they had just an incredible range of sounds on them. Um, and one of them had been movie by Gil Scott Aaron. It may may even have been the very first one. I'd need to check actually. It could even be on that C81. So it had this track B movie by Gil Scott Aaron, which was about Ronald Reagan. But when you think about what's going on in the States now, you've only got to swap a few names on that track and it's just super relevant to what's going on now. It's pretty incredible really. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I bought the album that that was on, which I'm trying to think. I think it was on an album called Moving Targets. Um, and then from there, I just started looking for Gil Scott Heron albums. Um, and then over the period of the next sort of three or four years, I managed to get about another seven or eight Gil Scott Heron albums. I got the one with the bottle on it with Brian Jackson uh, with the black cover. I can't remember the name of that album now. Um, uh, it, loads of others, basically. I got, I got loads of others. Loads of them were available as cutouts from cutout stores, so I was getting them quite cheap. And then I saw him play three times. I saw him play the Marcus Garvey Centre in Nottingham uh, in about '82. Saw him again in '84, '85, and then I was, the last time I saw him when he was in a bit of a state, really was at the Jazz Cafe in 93 or 94. I, I remember that mainly because um, Jay from Jamiroquai was prancing about in the audience, kind of showing off. I was like, oh, what, a, what an absolute dickhead. Um, but yeah, that was that was sort of a pretty sad. I, I felt that was like really sad because he was obviously in severe decline and he wasn't in a good way by then. Whereas in the 80s, he was uh, on top form still. Christ knows whether he was doing loads of drugs then, he probably was. I know, I know that one of them was smoking a massive spliff. I remember one of them having a massive spliff while they were playing. So, you know, cer certain substances were certainly being consumed. But he was, for me, the 80s was a time of political division, political activity. I was really active in the trade union movement. I was an activist in the Labour Party. and And... For me, he was the perfect artist because he was, he was an African-American artist playing music that was amazing. Plus, he was really politically driven as well. So he was like almost my perfect 1980s artist, really. So I was a, just a huge fan of him. And it is a stunning, stunning piece of work. So I'm, I'm interested if that was on C81 or one of those comp tapes. That takes up a lot of room. It's like a it's eight, an edit, 11... Yeah, it's an edited version. I right, think okay. it's like about six... I think the, the album version's 13 minutes long, but I think the version on, on that tape would have been maybe about six minutes long or something like that. Uh, I can't remember, but it definitely wasn't the, the you know, the super long version because it's got quite a lot of extended instrumental bit at the you know in the second half it kind of was i think it just faded out after a certain point that's right i agree with you with the whole introduction to genres through 
I mean, they just don't exist anymore because print media is pretty much gone. The only one I can think of is electronic music, which still does the seven inches, but then you've got to be a subscriber for those. And that's when you can get introduced to new stuff. But yeah, I mean, for me, the select magazines back in the mid 90s, then of course, Mix Mag, which of course, you know, the association with the US and Straight No Chaser and the, the mix CDs from them, they were absolutely phenomenal. That's where you got your, for me at least, you got exposed to all this other stuff and generally it was going to be pretty good because it was based off people that you kind of trusted from a you know from a reading perspective it's something that's gone and it's a bit of a shame i think okay so it's it was on a, a compilation called jive wire um, wow. which also had pig bag Aswad, uh the beat suicide Kraftwerk, um the gun club black uhuru defunct was another band that I'd, i think i'd already discovered them by then actually um, so yeah, they were in just really, really amazing compilations, and I learnt so much about music from them. No YouTube algorithm or Spotify algorithm can put that kind of stuff together. You've got to have somebody yeah. behind the controls. Yeah, and and I and it's one of my re- great regrets that I never got to meet Roy Carr. I, I kind of I had nearly did a few times, and then unfortunately he died. So, but I I owe him a lot, and I always wanted to meet him to thank him. So putting those compilations together. Well, again, we're switching styles. We're kind of going to Ella Washington and sit down and cry. reminds me in, in the 80s was when I really got into digging for older music in a, in a big way I, not that there wasn't loads of great things coming out contemporaneously as well because there was you know I was really into like 80s hip-hop and electro and um, and also I was on a, a limited budget for a lot of the 80s and so I didn't have loads of money uh, but Andy Kershaw used to have a show on Radio 1 and uh, he played I'm Losing the Feeling which is on this uh, Ella Washington album called Nobody But Me and I love this album so I bought this as a reissue album and it was originally on a, a label called Soundstage 7 and Soundstage 7 was run by a guy called John Richburg who was 
one of what were termed white Negroes. Um, I think Tom Wolfe or somebody wrote a piece about the, these kind of guys, and he was someone that was really, really into soul music and was a big promoter of soul music. And South Sage Devon put out some really amazing Southern Soul records by obviously Ella Washington, but also uh, Roscoe Robinson, Roscoe Shelton, lots of other people as well. Um, and, and through this one uh, album by Ella Washington, I also went on to discover, you know, Roscoe Robinson and all of these other people. But I bought this and there's this track on it, Sit Down and Cry, which is just one of the most amazing soul records ever. And it's still stuck with me now. It came out in 1987. I thought it was earlier, actually. But um, uh, yeah, I lived for this compilation when it first came out. And the, the, the three tracks in particular that I love from it, there's one called, called He Called Me Baby. Uh, I'm Losing the Feeling is another one, and Sit Down and Cry. Uh, and actually, Heather Small, when she was in Hot House, did a cover version of um, He Called Me Baby, I think. Um, but yeah, this is such an amazing uh, compilation and she had a great voice and Sit Down and Cry is one of the great soul songs of all time. It was recorded on the same soundstage as people like Patsy Cline and all of that because I'd listened to the piano and I thought, I've heard that piano on, it sounds like 15 different other similar records of the era. It's, it's got the same, the, the same sound. It's, it's really tremendous. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, it came out in 69 originally, but it's just got that real raw Southern Soul sound that I really love. You just kind of, it's basic, but really beautifully played. Let me move on to Tim Buckley and Sweet Surrender. I mean, what can you say about this? Because it's just, it's magic. This was from, uh, it was another reissue album that I discovered it. And, and in fact, I think in Retromania by um, 
Uh, what's his name? Simon Reynolds uh, writes in Retro Mania. He, he reckons this is the first album that started the kind of reissue craze of sort of discovering semi-forgotten albums. And there was a big marketing campaign for this. Um, I don't know whether that's true or not. I mean, you know, I've got no reason to doubt that it is true. But at the time, I was living in Switzerland um, and I was working as a chef in a hotel in Geneva. So I had a ghetto blaster. But I, so the only way I could listen to music was was on this ghetto blaster. And, and my friend Bob, who was a, another chef that I'd worked with in London before I moved to Switzerland, he, he made me a, a C90 cassette. And on it was this track, Sweet Surrender, uh, among other things. I remember there was uh, Let's Get Serious was on it by Jermaine Jackson. And, and he, he put various things. He was going to the beetroot a lot at that time. So he put on things that were kind of big at the beetroot. But this one really blew me away when I heard it. So the next time I came back to London, I remember buying the album as a reissue from uh, the Virgin Megastore on on Oxford uh, on Oxford Street, just near the Tottenham Court Road uh, station entrance. Um, and then again, like um, Gil Scott Heron, I spent the rest of the 80s hunting down Tim Buckley albums. You know, I remember Sophronia was the next album that I found, and then Happy Sad, and then and then I ended up with like pretty, I think almost every album, maybe bar one or two. Um, but I just really loved the variety of music that um, he had. But I think still now, Greetings from LA, LA is my favourite because it was the first Tim Buckley album that I ever owned. And, and I love the production on it. I love the feel of it. It's kind of funky, but it's also really soulful and kind of singer songwritery as well. It's just, to me, the ultimate LA Laurel Canyon style album. Exactly. You can smell the West Coast on that one. The, the thing that just stood a little bit odd is that I think it's a 12-string guitar on it. It just sounds a little bit... It doesn't clash with that sound, but it does really stick out beyond what would you normally hear from a guitar sound from that kind of Laurel Canyon perspective. So that, that really stuck in my ears. Yeah. But, the, but then those strings come in and you just kind of get you know, washed away again. It's, um, it's beautiful. Yeah, he's amazing. He's amazing. Yeah. In fact, I've never been able to listen to... Je One of my friends who's a big... Tim Buckley and Jeff Buckley fan said, you know, Jeff Buckley's actually better than Tim Buckley. So, and that actually put me off. I thought, I can't, I can't listen to Jeff Buckley in case it somehow turns me away from Tim Buckley. So, I've, I've had to avoid listening to Jeff Buckley for that reason. Yeah, beautiful album, beautiful, beautiful track. Anyone on the podcast wants just a little dose of uh, West Coast, just go and grab that, listen to it. You won't be disappointed. Sweet, sweet. Mm -hmm. 
dedicated to all my homeboys back there On Brightside Ave, the RB boys alike This one for you Everybody got a gun. If you want to switch it up completely, then you can go and listen to Schoolie D in dedication to all the B boys. <laughs> yeah, this is completely at the opposite of. Um, yeah, this this was the kind of modern music that I was really into in the 1980s. Um, I was a really big fan of Mantronics. Um, really big fan of Run DMC. Really big fan of Beastie Boys. Uh, and then later, obviously, the kind of native tongues, De La Soul, and um, yeah, until house music ar- arrived in my life. I mean, I-, I sort of was buying a few house records in 86 and 87, like a few, not many. I bought, a tr- um, I bought um, Boris Badenoff on tracks in about 86, but I didn't know that it was a house record at the time. It was just something that John Peel played, really, and and I bought it because I'd heard it on Peel. But hip hop, I was much more into it as a whole culture, the, the graffiti and the body popping and, you know, breaking and dancing on the liner and all that. Not that I did any of that, but just the, the culture of it was really appealing. Uh, and I just loved the rawness of it as well. It kind of it, it, it struck me as being a bit of a kind of black punk rock at the time, which is what a lot of people described house as as well. But it's just the rawness of it was amazing. And Schooly D, if, for people that don't know and weren't around at the time, is really the first gangster rapper. You know, he's the first one to talk about um, guns and shooting and, and, you know, projects and all of that kind of stuff. And in fact, I saw an interview with... Um, Ice Cube or Ice Tea uh, recently, and he was talking about Schooly D being like, you know, there before they were. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'd always thought of him as like the first gangster rapper before gangster rap existed. But um, yeah, it, it, it was amazing. And this record in particular is fantastic. And I remember spending years trying to work out what the sample was because it's obviously, obviously a sample in there. And then when I discovered, when I found out what it was, I was like, oh my God, the lyrics to this are so dodgy. I don't know if you know what the sample is. But it's, it's the Commodores, isn't it? It's the Commodores, yeah. yeah, young, yeah. young girls are the sweetest. <laughs> Says it all. It's proper dodgy, it is. It really is. But it's a wicked groove. I mean, the track is amazing. Um, I loved the Commodores before Lionel went all soft, but... Um, yeah, they were, they, were, they were a great band, but this is fantastic. And it also reminds me of a particular period. I, I moved back to Grimsby for a few years in the 1980s because I was sort of wanting to do something other than cook for a living. And uh, and so I started a post-punk band that was in a band and we got signed for a record label, put out a couple of records. and So I was heavily involved in music without actually earning any money from it. Um, and... This period reminds me of 
the one time in Grimsby we had a dedicated record store because prior to that you had to go to Boots or WH Smith or this electrical shop called Rainers to buy records. You couldn't, there was no proper record store. But for about a year in the mid 80s, we had this really great record store that obviously was not patronized enough by people because it went bankrupt. And I remember buying this as a, as a, because it, it was licensed to a subsidiary of Rhythm King, might even have been on Rhythm King actually, but it was a, a British release of an American import and I couldn't afford imports in those days. So I bought this UK issue of Schooly D from that store. So it kind of reminds me of that period quite a lot as well, which is just before I moved back to London. Can you remember the name of the shop? No, what I can't. I could tell you exactly where it is. It was on. It was on um, Cleethorpes Road, right near to where Asda's used to be, uh, like and, and near a famous. There used to be a famous hairdresser called Billy Baker's, and it was a few doors down from that. But I can't remember the name of it. So then about hitting everything on the beat, we sort of wrap it up and end with an absolute epic. I'd completely forgotten about this. And then as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, shit, I've got to listen to this immediately. Um, 51 Days and Paper Moon. What a track. I mean, yeah, this is uh, for me the ultimate deep house record, really. Um, And at the time this came out, I was living in New York. I was working, I was running DMC's New York office. Um, So I was going out to the sound factory every Saturday. I was going to see Louis Vega play every Wednesday at Sound Factory Bar, going to see Frankie play at the Sound Factory Bar on Friday. And this record was huge in New York. What makes me laugh about uh, companies like Rush Hour, the Dutch company who were dedicated to sort of reissuing classic American tracks is that period in New York, everyone was obsessed with Dutch house. And, and I think it's a real shame that Rush Hour have not seen that the music coming out of Holland was every bit as good during that period as anything from America. Um, and, and it was really about three or four different producers all combining on the different names and different pseudonyms. And this is one of them. And it's just so amazing. It's just an incredible record. And I lived for this record when it came out. Um, what wasn't big with big DJs like Danny, um, Junior didn't play it, but but the, the kind of other DJs, it was huge. It was a huge New York record, yes, one that you heard everywhere you went. 
did you get any work done in New York, or were you just <laughs> just going out and seeing incredible nights out? Well, yeah, I did, but but because my job was music related, um, going out was sort of part of my job in a way. I mean, you know, you, as as the person who was running the DMC office, they wanted me to be out on a, you know, Wednesday night at the Sound Factory Bar was actually an industry party, so everyone from the industry would hang out there. And um, so everyone that worked at a record label would be there and all the DJs would be there. And there, there never was really, an, the nearest equivalent I can think of in London was um, the night that um, Call Trouble Anderson used to do at HQs in Camden. There were a lot of industry people went to that. Um, but this actually was a formal industry thing and there were party people there as well but there were loads and loads of people from record labels on a Wednesday at um, Sound Factory Bar. So I'm, I'm trying to imagine, are you stood taking notes or chatting with other folks or are you actually having a party as, <laughs> when this music's being played? Um, bit of both really so yeah you'd like hang out at the bar and talk to people that you knew I was really friendly with like you know I was really good friends with Tommy Mosto I was uh, really good friends with Ted Patterson um, I was r- best friends with Danny Tanaglia and Rob DeStefano around Tribal America um, I was really close to Sir, who ran King Street and he had a really gorgeous Japanese girl called Madoka who I really fancied so I was so I was very friendly with Madoka um, and just yeah generally there were a lot of people there that I knew I knew Peter Dow and Vanessa Dow I knew Benji Candelario I knew lots and lots of people uh, the guys from Move to Swing I was friendly with especially John um, so if any of these people were there I'd, I'd hang out and talk to them but then you know, um, uh, Francois, who'd not been DJing for years, started his DJing comeback was playing in what they used to call the Funk Hut, which was this little space downstairs in the South Factory Road. On a Wednesday, he'd come and play in there. He'd play like old disco and just mixing it up, really. And so I, if he was playing, I'd always be down there listening to him. So there were, you know, so it was a mixture of, of dancing and, and hanging out at the bar and talking to people. And at that time, were many of the sort of bigger names, they were because we're getting that sort of period is certainly in the UK, we're getting into the, the super club era almost. It's just before that. So Cream is there, Renaissance is there, Ministry of Sound is there, but it's just before they go stratospheric and then it kind of takes over the world. So were, were you getting in New York, you know, the European guys coming over or was it just primarily, you know, US... DJs, US DJs of these places. It, it was it was starting to happen. So while I was living there, the Sound Factory closed, and then the Sound Factory became became Twilo. So the Sound Factory closed February '95, I think, and then and then Twilo opened maybe like May '95, June '95, and the first night there was Frankie Knuckles played. Maybe did he play with some? He played with someone else, possibly Deep Dish. I can't remember. But then, but then Sasha and Digweed started coming over, and, and but for me, the different. It's not that I don't. I mean, I know both of those guys, and I really like them, and I've done various things with Sasha. But that what they were doing was bringing a suburban, largely white straight crowd into 
Philo and all of the parties that we've always gone to were gay gay parties basically so they were 70% gay often quite uh, African American depending on where they were um, so we were it wasn't really on a, they were popular they were really popular the parties with people like uh, that I think it was Northern Exposure they were called um, they were popular, but they weren't really on our radar. It just wasn't part of what we were into. So we were going to like little after hours things that saved the robots, and we were going to like uh, Don Hills, which was this other venue that was popular at the time, and Nell's, which was a old school venue that was still around then. Um, and then Frank and I, um, Frank Broughton, who I met in New York, we started doing our own party, which is what became Low Life when we moved back to the UK. But it didn't have a name when we started doing them then. So yeah, the Brits had started to come over, but it but it wasn't something that actually interested me really. I don't know. It just most of our friends weren't British. The only English person that I knew was Frank, um, and we met through work-related things. So our friends were really. Um, Americans or, or we had a little Kiwi contingent of buddies as well so um, yeah it just it, it wasn't part of our kind of vocabulary or that kind of stuff really. That's fine didn't need to and it's interesting because you mentioned Northern Exposure because I'm pretty sure I don't think this appears on one of the compilation albums but it was definitely on a mix that Darren Emerson did which I know is not Northern Exposure but it was that that sound that they were doing uh, Sasha Dewey and Emerson and that's where I heard it and was taken away with it it's this it's, it's a whopper is that because what was that series called Global yeah Global Underground Global Underground yeah 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 so uh, you know there were lots of similar type DJs that were doing the Global Underground Dave Seaman did a few of them didn't he and John Bigweed and Sasha and uh, Danny Tanaglia did a few as well I think um, uh, yeah, I, uh, yeah, it's an, an epic record. It's really hard to pick one. I mean, I wanted to pick one house record that kind of, for me, summed up house music, and and I can't think of a better one than that, really. Yeah, and I like it because I don't think many other folks, if they had to pick one house record, would pick that one. But actually, when you hear it, it pretty much has everything that you need in a house record. It's got it all in there: length, duration, build that kind of nostalgic t- fade twist to it it's it's uh, it's a beauty yeah absolutely well that actually wraps up this edition of time lock it's been fantastic to have you on bill anything you want to leave us with and obviously you've you mentioned a couple of projects you're working on and you know it's a bit interesting with what's going on but you had you had danielle moore in your living room two weeks ago how was that uh, well, she wasn't literally in my mix. <laughs> it was a, a mix that she did for me because uh, obviously we're under lockdown, social distancing and all that. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, she wasn't technically in my living room. It was really good. She, she sent a really fantastic one-hour mix and I played it. I mean, you know, if this goes out when the lockdown is still on, then they can listen to me live streaming every Saturday night from 8pm till midnight on 16loop.com. So that's where I am every Saturday, just trying to kind of play music and sort of communicate with people. You know, that's for me, it isn't the same as playing to a room full of people because I love the human connection of DJing, Um, but it's the next best thing. So, you know, uh, and also it's been nice to just kind of 
stay in touch with DJing as well and, and, and it gives you that enthusiasm to kind of want to find new music to play and all of the kind of things that spur you on on a week-to-week basis when you're playing in clubs every week. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I miss not playing in clubs. I miss playing in clubs quite badly. I, I do I do like the human interaction of it. That's what is appealing about it for me. Yeah, I think we're all feeling that and we can't wait for all that to ease off and then we can get back and start doing that again. So thanks very much, Bill, for having us and we'll speak soon. Pleasure. Massive thanks again to Bill for a fascinating conversation and superb selection of songs. Remember to check out his weekly stream and his DJ History podcast on Sound and Mixcloud. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Timelock. If you did, please leave a comment, like or share. And don't forget to listen to the monthly Gator podcast presented by Node and available to stream on Soundcloud. So until next time... Thank you.